Let's have a word of prayer together. So I invite you to bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for a beautiful Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together here now and study your holy word. Father, we pray that you will pour out the Holy Spirit upon your people, upon us as we've come together to worship thee in spirit and in truth. We pray that the Spirit will give us discernment and soften our hearts and our minds to be be prepared to see the truth, accept the truth, make it a part of our very life. Father, we pray forgiveness for our sins and where we've fallen. We ask humbly that you forgive us. We claim the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. We're very thankful for the many blessings that you give to us moment by moment. We're thankful for our friends and our families and the, and the church and for, uh, for your wonderful care and providing for all our needs while we are here. We're especially thankful for the gift of Jesus and His willingness to come to this earth, become like one of us. What a mystery. What a mystery. And be our example of how to live a righteous life and and to take our sins upon Himself and die in the most dreadful way that rose again and gives us hope that we may see Him face to face one day. Father, we pray for those who couldn't be with us today. We pray for Susan, who's suffering an illness. Uh, Lord, we pray that you will touch her and heal her. We pray for our daughter, Andrea, who has uh, some health issues. could be serious. We pray that you be very near to her and the doctors as they run the tests. We pray that you be with our, our dear friend, Jerry, we've learned has lost her job she's um, lord she you know she's of a, a high age and it's tough to find uh, work when you're uh, elderly and she needs income and uh, lord may this be an opportunity for us to to serve her in a much better way we pray lord that you will be with our friends and our loved ones and our families and send the angels to protect them and keep them especially be uh, with me this morning as I bring the words of life to the congregation. Give me the words to speak. And be your words and not my own. We thank you so much for all your love and care for us and for hearing this prayer as we ask it in the blessed name of Jesus who is worthy to be praised. Amen. As far back as I can remember, our family has built the houses that we've lived in pretty much all my life. My grandfather on my father's side was of that generation uh, that did everything they could themselves, and usually not because they wanted to, it was necessity. You know, what's the saying about necessity? It's the mother of all invention. You've heard that saying before. This was the generation of the Great Depression. My grandfather taught his children how to survive and make do with what they had. And this principle, and by the way, it is a godly principle at that, was passed down to my siblings. I learned to do many things for my father, especially vocational things. It's difficult not to learn these things when you have a dad who does everything himself. You know, the saying, uh, by beholding we become changed. Isn't that true? My dad was a mechanic. He was a carpenter, an electrician, a plumber, farmer, builder. He was an engineer. The list goes on. He did so much with so little that it still amazes me to this day. And yeah, and as my wife says, he he was able to do all that without the internet. That's funny. Yeah, he he didn't know anything. He would come to me and say, "Can you look this thing up for me?" and and then let me know about it. <laughs> he never had been on the internet at all. Um, but uh, uh, I praise God, I've been blessed with a family and a father that I had. I miss him dearly. But as my dad was taught by his father, I've too been taught by mine, and I have the skills as well. Uh, you know, a mechanic, carpenter, electrician, etc. 
and I'm not saying this to gloat or to build myself or my family up, but to make a point. You see, my family was raised without religion uh, when I was very young. And, and, or should I say, probably better to say without a church. Yet my father taught me the value of building my house on a firm foundation. So when I read chapter 7, for example, the book of Matthew, I have no doubts in my mind that the Lord was at work in my family even though we didn't really know Him yet. And, and that pleases me to know that we have such a loving God that He's striving with all people to win their hearts. And He doesn't give up on that. Let's go to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, begin with verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, and that's the key, isn't it, beloved? A lot of Christians hear what Jesus says, but they don't do what He says. But notice what he, He's talking about here. He says, If you hear these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. It was founded upon a solid foundation. And then he goes on, he says, And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it. For any house to stand through storms and, and tempests, it must have a solid and sure foundation. And the same is true in regards to the body of Christ, friends, the, the, the church. If the body's not founded upon righteous principles and, and gospel order as we've studied and before, it will not grow in grace or in number, but will collapse under trials and persecutions for Christ's sake. Now, let me back up a second. It may grow in numbers because we see mega churches today, don't we? But the point is that though it grows in numbers, it doesn't have a solid foundation. So when these trials and persecutions come, it will fall, and as Jesus said, and great will be the fall of it. And before the body can be built up and grow, it needs to be founded upon that good foundation, doesn't it? Many buildings can be built on poor foundations, but when it comes time to be tested, as Jesus said, that building will collapse. It's reminded me, just before my wife and I were married, we went around the area uh, back back home in Indiana, we went around looking at houses um, that were for sale, that were within our budget. We were hoping to find one suitable for our soon-to-be home together. And I remember one that was within our budget that we found, and the owner would sell it to us, and he would sell it to us on contract. But as I went around that house, looking at the house, inspecting it, and I went into the basement, I saw that the foundation was made of old stone and mortar. And now that's not necessarily bad if it has been taken care of. But this foundation was crumbling. It had cracks, it had soft spots. And so I'm glad that I learned what to look for that my father had taught me. Or else we might have had huge problems if we went ahead and bought that house. I was not surprised to hear that the, the house was torn down uh, sometime later on. And so, friends, we, we don't want our building efforts. And what I'm specifically speaking about today is the, the growing of the body of Christ. I've, I've uh, entitled this sermon, Field Exercises. This is a part of going out and growing the body of Christ. And we don't want our building efforts to collapse. So we must, uh, we must build this church, build this house upon a sure foundation. And that's Jesus Christ, isn't it? And His principles. In Isaiah 28, verse 16, the Bible says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, 
a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. It's an interesting statement. The cornerstone being spoken of here, and we find, and we'll read uh, in just a few moments uh, some more scriptures about this, but the cornerstone was a most important part of the structure. Now, I say that, most people are they're like, okay, so it's a cornerstone. Why is it so important, this cornerstone? The reason a cornerstone was so important that it was sound was that it bound together the two walls that met at the corner. It took a tremendous amount of strength. It goes through a tremendous amount of stress. Okay. So it was the most important part of that building, of that foundation. It was the cornerstone. And here we're learning through the Bible about this cornerstone. He who rests his faith in Christ, see, who is called the cornerstone, may move forward in confidence and in trust because he'll hold it together. See, And that person's not going to become alarmed in the midst of, of whatever circumstances they may find themselves. But they're going to trust in God because he has set a sure foundation. He holds the walls together. In Luke chapter 20, verse 17 and 18, says, And he beheld them, and said, What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. And Jesus here is asking a question. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. It's very interesting what he's saying here. So he asks the question, The stone which the builders rejected, that same stone, is the strongest cornerstone there was. And he makes a point about that. He says, Whosoever fall upon that stone shall be broken. What does that mean? It means to submit to Christ, to commit to Him, and your old life will be broken. It will be replaced with a new one. One that you can trust. Because the cornerstone is Jesus. And He'll hold you together. Now what happens if that stone falls upon you? What did Jesus say? He says it will grind you to powder. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it sounds very painful, doesn't it? It doesn't say that you'll just be crushed, which you will, but it will grind you to powder. That's a process in and of itself, isn't it? So he says, you, if you reject that firm foundation, remember, go back to Matthew 7. If you're not built on a firm foundation when storm and tempest come, what's going to happen? The house is going to fall, and mighty will be the fall. And here he's liking it to that cornerstone falling upon you and grinding you to powder. You'll be crushed to pieces. And that's a very solemn thought, isn't it? And it's very interesting, we talk about prophecy, we see the same thing expressed in the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2, if you'll recall. It speaks of a stone in that chapter, doesn't it? And it's a stone which is cut out without hands, that comes and destroys that image and sets up the everlasting kingdom of God. And... What does the Bible tell us about who that stone is? This sure foundation that the body must be built upon, the body of Christ, the church. Well, in Psalms 18 and verse 2, King David says, The Lord is my rock. Isn't that interesting? The Lord is my rock. He's my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength, in whom I will trust. Why? Because He's a rock. He's not sand. He says he's my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. He's making a very good case that you can completely trust the Lord with everything. And Peter says in Acts chapter 4, beginning with, with verse 10, he says, Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead. Even by him does this man stand here before you whole. This is when they healed the man. In verse 11, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. So he's referring back to what Jesus had said. That question, remember, that Jesus had had uh, the rhetorical question, in essence, that he had asked them. He said, you have rejected that cornerstone. And then in verse 12, we're very familiar with this verse, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven, given among men whereby we must be saved. So he's saying, here, Jesus is the only one that can save us. He is the cornerstone. And you have set him at naught. You have rejected him. So, by rejecting him, what foundation did they use? They used the one of sand, didn't they? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, and remember, in that chapter 10 there, he's referring back to the the wandering of the children of Israel there in the wilderness, and he says, and did all drink the same spiritual spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was who? That rock was Christ. And so when you, you go out and you begin to build and grow the body of Christ, remember we had been given commission, and God enables us to do the work that He's asked us to do. He gives us the power to do that. So when we go out and we share, we use... Uh, those spiritual gifts that we've received, we use our talents and such, we begin to grow the body, that we have to make sure that we are on a sure foundation. And the head of the corner of our foundation is to be Jesus Christ. Now this was finally understood spiritually by the disciples and it drew them together into unity of mind and judgment. And as they came into one accord, what happened? We studied this the last time we were together. The Lord poured out His Spirit upon them at Pentecost. Gave them power to grow the body of Christ, to do the the field exercises that they had been uh, learning about as they walked with Jesus. In essence, they were given the power to make disciples of all nations. They were given the power to build the temple of God, to prepare this temple for His presence. I'm talking spiritually here now. Not the literal temple. And so we find that God wants to be with us um, in the same way, beloved, so that we can finish what they started in building the temple. And again, I'm not talking about the temple in Jerusalem, friends. That is a temple that was built with human hands. I'm talking about the true temple of the Lord built without human hands. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 19, we'll start there. Paul says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Remember, holds everything together, that cornerstone. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now friends, the devil would have you believe that you're saved through, uh, we refer to it as sloppy agape or cheap grace, and therefore there's no need of any temple, really. Or that you can build your own temple unto the Lord with your own hands. Either way is fine with him. But the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is building his temple. And you know what's fascinating about it is that he's using us to do it. We are the building materials of the temple. We are those precious stones that He's polishing. In Matthew 16, verse 18, it says, and this was Jesus here, He's speaking to to, uh, the disciples, and particularly speaking to Peter. And He says, And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, 
And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now let me ask you a question. Was Jesus saying that he was building the temple upon Peter as the foundation? Is Peter, right here, is Jesus saying that Peter was to be the cornerstone? Oh, no. Emphatically, no. Jesus said to Peter, if you get into the original language, he's, he says, Thou art Petros. And Petros means a piece of a rock. Or Cephas, which means a stone. And it's very interesting, if you compare the Greek there of Cephas with the Hebrew, it means actually a hollow rock. I found that to be rather interesting. A hollow rock would not be a very good cornerstone. You need a solid rock. One that doesn't have the grains in it, certain grains that would keep it from splitting. It's one that was a very stout rock. But he's telling Peter here, Peter, you're, you're a hollow rock. Okay? You're a hollow stone. And then referring to himself, Jesus said, upon this Petrus in the Greek. So he said to Peter, you are Petros, I am Petros. And that means a mass of rock. Okay. And so he says, I'm going to build my church upon me, this massive, this mass of rock, this solid rock, this sure corner stone. And we've already read that Jesus is the rock. He's the, the foundation. He is the, the cornerstone that sets everything up and holds all together perfectly. But what's interesting is he didn't say that Peter was worthless, that Petros was worthless. No. He said, you are a piece of the rock. We are to reflect that cornerstone. We are pieces of that rock, which is Christ. When you're born again, you become a piece of the rock. <laughs> Thanks for that song. Well, so we are the pieces of rock, or we are the Petros that Jesus is using to build upon that foundation. As Paul said, it was Jesus the cornerstone, and the apostles and prophets were part of that building process and we we go above them we're building upon the foundation that they set and he's using us to build upon that foundation friends we are the stones that he is polishing for the temple so in a nutshell Jesus was saying that the, the body of Christ also known as the church is the temple of the Lord and Jesus is building it himself as the cornerstone that foundation and he's building it one stone or Petros at a time. One individual believer at a time. And this is what grows the body. And in our last study we learned that when the, the people of God are united in mind and judgment, which means that they have the same righteous purpose and they are of one accord, that God can trust them with His power. Now you recall the, the statement I shared with you from Christ's Object Lessons? It's found in uh, Christ's Object Lessons, page 333. And this is just this is an incredible statement, incredible promise. If we would realize, <laughs> realize how powerful God is to change our life. She says, as the will of man cooperates with the will of God. You remember that? it becomes what? Omnipotent. I meditate upon that. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. Whatever is to be done at His command may be accomplished in His strength. All His biddings are enablings. Never forget that. With Jesus, all things are possible. Without Him, we can do nothing, friends. And this is what was happening with the 
the disciples there. Jesus had told them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, He said, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And then you'll be witnesses, He says, unto me. You're going to be my witnesses, my ambassadors, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And again, let me remind you, I want to emphasize that that Greek word for power in this verse is dunamis. That's where we get our English word dynamite from. Is that Greek word dunamis. And this is a supernatural power received only by those upon whom that Holy Spirit is poured out upon. And we see that in Acts. What happened at Pentecost? And this power is for overcoming. It's for witnessing. You see? It gives power within. Power to proclaim the gospel. Power to lead others to God. As you study the Gospels and you get up into the book of Acts, you know, up until this point in time, the disciples were being trained as they went about the land with Jesus, right? And as we learn more and more of Jesus, we're being trained as we go about our witnessing and our our life. And as they learned the lessons about the kingdom, they were often given chances to do the work that they saw Jesus do. And that's what we're to do, isn't it? Remember when He sent them out two by two as an example? These were field exercises. And they went through these field exercises rather often. And sadly, many times they they failed. But they didn't always fail. But Jesus used such instances to teach a lesson that would be very important for them later down the road. Especially after He was gone. And these experiences, these field exercises, helped them to prepare for the time of Pentecost. And the disciples were given the power of God to do His will and work, and they set upon the task of growing the body. They learned from those experiences and improved in those field, what I I call field exercises, as they grew closer and closer in bonds to each other and to Christ and love for humanity. And that's our goal here. Jesus is wanting a generation of people that He can pour out His Holy Spirit upon to give the last call to earth before His coming. We call it the latter rain. We're to pray for the latter rain. Part of the field exercises is is implementing the early rain. And we're in the process of that. And so, the Holy Spirit poured out, was poured out upon the disciples there. They were all together, one accord. They had taken their experience. They were of one mind, one judgment. Where did they begin their, their task? In Acts of the Apostles, page 31, notice this. Christ told His disciples that they were to begin their work at Jerusalem. The wonderful truth that through Christ alone could remission of sins be obtained was to be made plain. And it was while all Jerusalem was stirred by the thrilling events of the past few weeks that the preaching of the disciples would make the deepest impression. There's a lot of things we can learn from this statement. When we're going about our field exercises, we need to take advantage of the opportunities that we're given. We need to strike while the iron's hot. Have you ever heard that? And that's a principle. When somebody is stirred by the Holy Spirit to learn about Jesus, we need to help them at that time and not put it off. Because that hot iron may cool down. But where did they start? He said to start at where? Jerusalem. And I found it very interesting that Jesus gives explicit instructions on where to begin the work of witnessing. Well, He's the cornerstone. He is the one in charge, isn't He? But He was laying out a principle to us. 
The work of growing the body begins first with the individual. So we could look at it like this. You could call this first work Jerusalem. The temple was in the heart of the city of Jerusalem, wasn't it? And God was at the heart of the temple, wasn't He? So we could call Jerusalem that individual work. Now I want you to notice something in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12. It says something very interesting here. This is Jesus. He's talking. He says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him, notice this, he says, I'm going to write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. That's interesting, isn't it? You should have noticed that those who are overcomers, he says, are said to be pillars in the temple. You know, the old saying, you know, that so-and-so is a pillar of the community. What is a pillar? A pillar is a column, isn't it? It it holds things up, right? It needs to be of certain characteristics. It can't be a hollow rock, right? It's got to be a sure stone. And Jesus is saying here that those who are overcomers are going to be sure stones. Because you see, they reflect that cornerstone perfectly. That's why they're overcomers. Not only did he say that they're going to be pillars in the temple, but he said they're going to have three names written upon them by God. Those who overcome, the pillars, have the permanent impress of God's character. That's what it means by His name is inscribed upon them, see. And so the pillar not only has the divine name inscribed upon it, but also bears the name of the new Jerusalem. And that signifies that the victorious Christian is a citizen of the new Jerusalem and has a right to reside there. Remember we read in Revelation, overcomers have a right to the tree of life. Because God governs by laws, doesn't He? He is the law. He's the maker of law. And they're all righteous laws. And God says, if you are obedient to me, you have a right to the tree of life. You have a right to be a citizen of the new Jerusalem. Now we like to be humble, right? We come before Jesus and He's our Lord and Savior and before God and we bow. We throw our crowns at His feet. We don't boldly uh, um, boast, oh, we have a right to be here. God says we have a right to be there. All the overcomers do. The third name that was written on that pillar is that of Christ Himself. And to receive Christ's name uh, is also to receive confirmation of His ownership. He is our Lord and Master. We've become like Him. Humanity and divinity combined. We're not God. We have the Holy Spirit within us like Jesus did when He was here. So, we'll have the name of the city of our God upon us and that name is New Jerusalem. Growth of the body of believers begins with the individual. This is is something I want you to, to think about. It begins with the individual. For God is to live in the heart of the temple which we are. Jesus said, first Jerusalem. And this presence of God in our heart has a rippling effect upon all around us. It's got to begin with us, doesn't it? It begins with us as an individual. The disciples allowed God to have complete control of their hearts. And this led them into what? It led them into to one accord. And then when they were in one accord, in unity of one mind, they received omnipotent power to witness to others of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Isn't that to be our goal? Don't you think that's what Jesus wants? He's been striving for? 
from the devotional book Reflecting Christ, page 130. It is essential that we have daily the converting grace of God in the heart, that all our words and deeds may give evidence that we are in submission to the mind and will of God. In doing with meekness and humility our appointed service, we are to reveal... Now notice she says, our appointed service. That means God is what? He's in charge of our life. Okay, So... In doing with meekness and humility our appointed service, we are to reveal the converting power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Then we become the Lord's agencies to do His work. So it starts in our own hearts, doesn't it? And we have to have that daily converting grace of God in our heart. Jesus said, Jerusalem. Begin at Jerusalem, us as individuals. And then He went on and He said, In all Judea. Well, we could liken that to our immediate and church family. And we've talked about and studied this before when we, we were in the, the series Defining God's Church, right? Let me remind you a few quotes here. Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 209. Every Christian family is a church in itself. Now, there's a qualifier there, isn't there? It's not every family is a church in itself. Every Christian family is a church in itself. Remember, Peter's saying that by the name of Jesus, that's the only name that can save us. He's the only one. We go through Christ. So you have to be Christian. That starts in Jerusalem with ourselves and then ripple out to our families. Every Christian family is a church in itself. Notice this one, the ad, from the Adventist Home, page 319. In the home, the foundation is laid for the prosperity of the church. If we want the church to, to prosper, the foundation, that sure foundation, that cornerstone, has to be laid in the family. In the home. In the home, the foundation is laid for the prosperity of the church. The influences that rule in the home life are carried into the church life. Therefore, church duties should first begin, where? In the home. Here's another one. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 3, excuse me, page 430. Christian homes, established and conducted in accordance with God's plan, are among his most effective agencies for the formation of Christian character and for the advancement of his work. What is? Christian homes that are established and conducted according to God's plan. Remember, first Jerusalem, then Judea, right? And then Jesus said after Judea, Samaria. We could liken that then to our neighborhood. Right? So, begin with the individual, then our family, our immediate family, our church family, and then the neighborhood. Here's a quote I'll share with you. It's from Review and Herald, March 13, 1888. And this is part of the field exercises that, we, that we've been commissioned to do. She says, go to your neighbors one by one and come close to them till their hearts are warmed by your unselfish interest and love. Isn't that what Jesus did? Remember when Jesus went around, He went from town to town, He met the people where they were, He fulfilled their need, He gained a confidence and trust in them, they saw that that uh, He had an unselfish interest, He wasn't doing it for any interest of Himself, He wanted them to know that He loved them. Right? So they had confidence in the things that he had to say. The things that he taught. And here we're being counseled. This is what we're to do. Go to your neighbors one by one. Come close to them till their hearts are warmed by your unselfish interest and love. Sympathize with them. Pray with them. Watch for opportunities to do them good. 
watch for opportunities. Strike while the iron's hot, remember? Watch for opportunities to do them good. And as you can, gather a few together and open the word of God to their darkened minds. Do not neglect speaking to your neighbors and doing them all the kindness in your power that you by all means may save some. This is part of those field exercises. This is Samaria Jesus is talking about. And then Jesus said, the uttermost part of the world. And that's kind of self-explanatory, isn't it? Now, while we can proceed in some way uh, to all of these areas kind of at the same time, we must acknowledge this principle of growth or we may become spread too thin, friends, and divisions will incur within the work. And we've seen this throughout the history of the church. We need to keep the army of the Lord together and not have any weak links in the armor. Remember what Jesus was saying in that principle. The individual, family and church, the neighborhood and the world. But I specifically want to emphasize growing in Christ as individuals within the body for it has to start there. That's where the heart of the work is. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 Peter said, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's kind of a, as Jesus said, it's a two-edged sword. These things happen, you know, in conjunction with each other. As we gain a knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are to grow in grace. (laughs) And as we grow in grace, we're going to want to know more and more about our Lord and Savior. Right? This is Peter is saying, he said, we must grow in the character. And we can say grace, if you get into the Hebrew, it's talking about character issues here, this grace of Jesus. When Jesus says, grace be upon you, he's wanting his righteousness to be upon us, his character to be upon us. So we must grow in the character of Jesus, and we do this by becoming knowledgeable of him. He says, search the scriptures, doesn't he? They testify of me, he says. And, and, and not just to have knowledge of him, because you know it's important to have knowledge, friends. It's very important to have knowledge, but it can't just stay as knowledge. It has to become a part of our life, part of our habits. We become knowledgeable of Christ, and as Peter says, by claiming and living those exceeding great and precious promises. This is Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. He says, We claim and we live those exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye, mean, ye might be partakers of what? The divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. When we become a partaker of the divine nature, we don't want to do those things of the world. We want to do the things of God. So, Peter's telling us we need to grow in grace and and in the knowledge of the Lord and as we do that and we start claiming and living those precious promises, we become a partaker of the divine nature. We begin to escape that corruption that we find in the world. We begin to escape those lusts that we have for worldly things. And this is how Jesus uses us to build His temple, which is His body, which is His church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, he said, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? We're the temple of God. God is dwelling in us. He's the, we need to have Jesus as that cornerstone and build upon that, see? He says, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And remember, Jesus said, If you fall upon the rock, you'll be broken, but you'll become a part of that foundation of the cornerstone. If you don't fall upon that rock, that, that rock falls upon you. And you'll be crushed to powder. And Paul is saying that. If any man devile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. That rock is going to fall upon you. 
And so, beloved, by partaking of the divine nature, we will grow in grace, we will grow in the character and knowledge of Jesus, and be the overcomers that we read about there in Revelation 3, that will make up the pillars in the temple of God. And, and our growth will not be limited to just us, but it will grow the rest of the body as well. You see that in the life of Christ. Psalms 92 and verse 12 says, The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. We'll continually be growing in knowledge of Christ, in knowledge of righteousness. And to grow as a Christian family, in a church family, uses the same principle. Jesus as the cornerstone, then all polished stones after that. Notice this is what Paul's speaking about in Ephesians chapter 4. He's talking about this process. And he gave, that's God, the Holy Spirit, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. For what reason? For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. What is the work of the ministry? To grow the body, to build the temple. Right? The temple of God, which ye are. <laughs> For the edifying of the body of Christ. That's why he gave them. And how long are we going to have these gifts, these, these appointments, these things that the Holy Spirit has brought? Verse 13, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Well, how do you measure the, the perfectness of a man? He says, Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this is going to happen, this process, and, and the Holy Spirit's giving these apostles and prophets to perfect the saints till they come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, till they reflect His character. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men. See, the, when you come to Christ as an individual first, you, you begin to, what Paul says is, you, you begin to drink the milk of the gospel. But we're to continually be growing. And all these things work together for the edifying the body till we all come into the unity of the faith. And eventually there's going to be a um, generation of God's people that reflect the character of Christ perfectly. That's what it means by the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ. As Paul goes on, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even Christ. Remember, He's the cornerstone. He's the head of the church. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And he's talking here about as we all come together in that unity. Is that what He said? The unity of the faith, knowledge of Christ, every part fit together. You know, when they built the original temple, the joints were, were cut perfectly. They were so fit together from a, a distance, it looked like one piece. You couldn't see the joint lines. And he says, we, with every part of the temple, every one of us working together in that unity. He says according to the effectual working of measure of every part. That expression, effectual working, is the Greek word energia. It's where we get the English word energy. So Paul's saying that every part of the church body has its essential function to perform. And every member is a working member. Every member is energized, 
He sang for Christ. And we're to work together with energy. And while the, the source of our energy supply is the head, which is Jesus, each part or member has a work to perform to br- uh, bring about the increase of the body, to grow the body. It's a twofold increase. Growth of the individual in the spiritual graces and of the church in numbers. And the source of that energy is love. Agape. And it comes from God. And Paul tells us the love of God constrains us to share the truth of Jesus with others. So if you're filled with the Spirit, you can't help it. (laughs) You can't help but share Jesus with others and share the truth with others. It drives us. And the result of this sharing is the growth of the body of Christ, is the building of the temple. Using the spiritual gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit, the the natural talents that each has, and the training we receive from the Holy Spirit through the church, we are to come up with different methods friends, to share the truth of the gospel, to share the three angels' messages and put them into operation. As Jesus said, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the rest of the world. And we we do this according to the Spirit and, and gospel order that we've been studying. And the body will grow as it's drawn by the truth and the love of Christ because we'll be lifting Him up. And Jesus said, if He If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. So maybe think of it this way. The physical body, our physical body, is made up of cells. Cells that are nourished properly will divide and create more healthy cells. Cells that are not nourished properly will divide into bad cells that create serious problems or may even cause death. So good growth depends upon what? It depends upon the source of the nourishment. If Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, spiritually nourishes us, the body of believers will grow, creating more and more healthy Christians. If we refuse to be nourished by Christ, the body of believers will divide or die, spiritually first, but ultimately physically as well. And so, we know our commission. We've been given power and gifts as individuals and talents. We're to come together as an entire body of believers in unity and organization so the Lord can give us all power in heaven to finish this work of growing the body, warning the world, preparing them to meet Jesus. And we're prepared for this experience, this final chapter that's coming by doing field exercises so that we may be completely battle-ready for the final conflict that we know that's coming. It's coming against the beast. And so, this is what Peter was talking about. This is what Paul was talking about. This is what the disciples were teaching the church to prepare for. They learned by walking with Christ. They went through these field exercises and we learned from their experience Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 1, he says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile. What is guile? It's it's being false, isn't it? It's not just lying, but you could tell the truth in such a way that it's a falsehood. It gives that impression, right? No guile. And that's something that we read about in Revelation that that generation that keeps the commandments of God and has faith in Jesus, there was no guile found in their mouth. And here was what Peter's saying. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. So what? Babies, they drink milk, right? So if you're a newborn babe in Christ, you're going to Drink the milk of the word. And if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, 
to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. That temple, see? And holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now what are those spiritual sacrifices? What is a sacrifice? You know, if somebody is a millionaire and they give a few dollars to charity, are they really sacrificing anything? What did you say? Something that causes you discomfort. Something that you could use that is a part you know, of your life that, that you need to use, but you sacrifice it for the better good. It's a sacrifice. Verse 6, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen nation, well, chosen generation, he says here, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that she should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Peter understood it. He learned from his walk with Christ, his individual devotions, his study, his field exercises. And he used them. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the head of the body. We're to grow in grace. And friends, through the power that was given there at Pentecost, these few disciples turned the world upside down. The gospel was preached to every creature, Paul said. I mean, do you remember the effect that Peter's sermon had on the devout men in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost alone? The Bible says the body grew by 3,000 members from that one sermon. What about afterward? Do you know the body grew by 5,000 members after the miracle healing of the cripple by Peter and John? You see, as Jesus went around in His ministry, He planted a lot of seeds in the hearts of people. And He planted those seeds during His ministry here, and they were harvested on those two days. 8,000 people. And if we want results like that, to the glory of God, we need to be in harmony and unity with each other like they were. They were in harmony and unity with each other and God. And if we're like that, we will reap such results. From the book Acts of the Apostles, page 45. Under the training of Christ, the disciples had been led to feel their need of the Spirit. Under the Spirit's teaching, they received the final qualification and went forth to do their life work. No longer were they ignorant and uncultured. No longer were they a collection of independent units or discordant, conflicting elements. No longer were their hopes set on worldly greatness. They were of one accord, of one heart and one soul. Christ filled their thoughts... Christ filled their thoughts. The advancement of His kingdom was their aim. Is that our aim, friends? Is our aim the advancement of the kingdom of God? It better be. In mind and character, they had become like their master. In how? In mind and what? Character. Knowledge and grace, see. Mind and character, they had become like their master. And men took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple, the body of Christ. 
in whatever stage of growth, whatever stage of growth it's in. Jesus is our foundation as an individual. Then we become a pillar in the temple, in our family, in the church, in the community, in the world. Our family will then become a pillar in the church, in the community, in the world. The church will become a pillar in the community and in the world. You see the ripple that one individual can make through partaking of the divine nature? Those promises that Peter tells us about? Do you realize what a generation of these individuals could do? Back to the book Acts of the Apostles, page 56. Every worker who follows the example of Christ will be prepared to receive and use the power that God has promised His church for the ripening of earth's harvest. That's the latter rain, friends. Every worker who what? Follows the example of Christ will be prepared to do what? To receive and use that power. Morning by morning, as the heralds of the gospel kneel before the Lord and renew their vows of consecration to Him, He will grant them the presence of His Spirit with its reviving, sanctifying power. Take it to the bank, friends. It's a promise. As they go forth to the day's duties, they have the assurance that the unseen agency of the Holy Spirit enables them to be laborers together with God. Remember we read before, when we submit our will to God's will, it becomes omnipotent. We can do the work. He enables us to do. Beloved, every generation has had the opportunity to grow as individuals in Christ. But our generation has the opportunity, we have the opportunity to grow as a body and partake of the latter reign. We are the final stones of the temple that the Lord has been building since the fall of man. We're the last in line. Do you realize that? Will we pass up our opportunity to grow? Will we fulfill our calling? Will we be battle ready for the end to bring glory to God? Acts the Apostles, page 91. To the early church had been entrusted a constantly enlarging work, that of establishing centers of light and blessing wherever there were honest souls willing to give themselves to the service of Christ. The proclamation of the gospel was to be worldwide in its extent, and the messengers of the cross could not hope to fulfill their important mission unless they should remain united in the bonds of Christian unity and thus reveal to the world that they were one with Christ and God. Remember, Jesus said, this is how they know that you are my disciples, because you have love for one another. You have my love. She says their spiritual life and power was dependent on a close connection with the one by whom they had been commissioned to preach the gospel. Only as they were united with Christ could the disciples hope to have the accompanying power of the Holy Spirit and the cooperation of angels of heaven. With the help of these divine agencies, they would present before the world a united front and would be victorious in the conflict they were compelled to wage unceasingly against the powers of darkness. And, beloved, this history is to be repeated. Will we be the ones to live it? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Zechariah chapter 10, verse 1 says, Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. And friends, let me tell you, Do not think that it is the latter rain that will make you an overcomer, make you a pillar in the temple. Don't believe that and just sit idly by waiting for some supernatural event to change your character. I'm going to tell you if you do this, you're never going to be changed. What's going to happen is you're going to be ready to receive the plagues of God. Too many people don't search the scriptures themselves yet believe that they say that the Lord will miraculously change their character with the power of the latter rain. Let me ask you a question. Did He do that with the disciples? 
Did he wave a, a wand and miraculously change their characters and bring them into one accord of Pentecost? Or were they united before then? It's because they were in unity and of one accord in spirit and in truth that God could pour out the Holy Spirit power upon them at Pentecost. I believe this is vital to understand, friends, because if you wait for some magic pill to arrive, you're going to miss the opportunity of partaking of that latter rain altogether. And what you will partake of is the counterfeit of Satan, which will lead to the plagues. And the growth in numbers under the latter rain will outshine the early rain growth there at Pentecost, which added thousands to the church in a day. So, friends, we must pray for the latter rain while we partake of the early rain. Amen? We're to be growing spiritually and sharing that growth with our family and church, neighbors and the world so they may become stones or have the opportunity to become stones in the temple of the Lord. Because I'll tell you, friends, Jesus is building a temple. He's building a temple for God to dwell in. He's using us as the material for that temple if we're willing. He's in search of these materials right now. And we've been commissioned to help Him in that search. Matthew 22, verses 9 and 10. Jesus said, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. It's friends. Beloved, use the energy that the love of Christ provides and go into the highways of your home, the highways of your family, the highways of church, the neighborhood, your workplace, wherever you are, and bid all to the marriage. Gain the experience that these field exercises provide that will prepare you to be battle-ready to face the end-time events that are soon upon us. As is declared in John 1, verse 9, Let us work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. And friends, let's do this knowing that Jesus is with us always, building the temple of His God even unto the end of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You so very much for Your holy word. We thank You for Your promises, those precious promises that You've given to us, that if we partake of them, we may become a part of the divine nature. We can be like Jesus. Father, send angels to be with us and your Holy Spirit to be with us as we go through the field exercises of our life. It first starts with us, in our hearts, as individuals. Please fill us with your Spirit. May that ripple out into our family, to the church, to our neighbors. Let us look for and take advantage of the opportunities that we have with our neighbors to witness to them to show them the truth so that some may be saved. May we be prepared for the final battle that's soon to be upon us. May we say no to sin, though it may cost us our life. Bring glory to Thee. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for this holy Sabbath day. May we keep it holy. Bring glory to Thy name. We humbly ask these favors in the precious name of Jesus who is worthy. Amen.